Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and my Reasonable Voice guest today Doris W. Gelman, Esquire, Elder Law Attorney, uh, Elman Law PLLC, Center for Elder Services. Doris W. Gelman is a private solo attorney whose practice is focused entirely on elder law. After 10 years of global travel in 35 different countries, Gelman returned to the U.S. and began her formal education at age 37 earning her B.A. summa cum laude in history from Salisbury University in Maryland, and her Juris Doctor, J.D., from New England Law in Boston at age 45. In Boston, Doris Gelman practiced at the firm of Vernkoff Goodman, LLP, in the Civil Litigation Department. Later, she relocated to Charlottesville, Virginia, to be closer to her aging parents and new grandchildren. While awaiting her Virginia law license, she volunteered at the Legal Aid Justice Center at the Elder Law Initiative and for Jefferson Board on Aging, where she served as a volunteer ombudsman advocating for residents of nursing facilities. In 2009, she opened her own office where she exclusively practices elder law. In 2016, she opened the Multidisciplinary Center for Elder Services. Good afternoon, Doris. How are you? I am very well. Thank you very much. And welcome to the show. We are uh, talking about having a reasonable voice. It's certainly you. For the few of my listeners who haven't heard my backstory, I'm particularly interested in, in speaking with attorney Doris W. Gelman because she focuses entirely on elder law. And there was a great deal I didn't know about Alzheimer's going into that phase of being a primary caregiver. So while I've spoken much on radio about Alzheimer's and the Alzheimer's Association, there are so many other issues that involve the growing population of elder citizens, senior citizens, that are legal issues. And so I just want people to understand what 
what value you bring to this afternoon's program. And so, first of all, what is long-term care? Um, well, long-term care, uh, as it's used in, in my field and in many people's field who are related to taking care of or providing services for the elderly people that we know and love, uh, relates to not medical care. That's the big distinction. It, mm-hmm. it relates to caring for them in their regular practical or what's known as activities of daily living mm-hmm. and personal care, things like getting dressed and uh, managing medications and preparing meals and bathing and all of those sorts of things um, that uh, most of us do on our own, but if you're disabled or elderly, you probably need some assistance with those things. Mm-hmm. Ombudsman, is that co- pronounced correctly? And what is it? It is pronounced correctly. Okay. It's a it's a fancy Swedish word, I think, for advocate. Oh, okay. Uh, is is what it means right. basically. You know, I've heard people say nursing homes will take your parents' home away from you, and I found that to be a fallacy. What do you think about? the the often stated nursing homes will take your home well there's let, let me uh back up one step and just sort of familiarize your audience with the idea of where long-term care is delivered because uh-huh. it is delivered in nursing homes but it is also delivered in assisted living facilities which are not medical care facilities mm. uh, nursing homes are typically do have medical staff uh, available or on duty at all times. Assisted livings are not required to have nurses or medical staff on duty. Some of them do have them, but they are not required to. And the other place that long-term care, as you've experienced, the, the other place it's delivered is in the home. And sometimes it's delivered by family members. Sometimes it's delivered by hired, either professional uh, caregivers from agencies or private duty people who are simply individuals that are hired to take care of someone in the home. And it can be a combination of those things when it's in the home. It could be a family member and an agency person or even perhaps hospice uh, Mm -hmm. towards the end. Um, So that's what long-term care is in terms of who delivers it, who provides long-term care. The, The dilemma that you're talking about in terms of the nursing home taking the home uh, that that's something that I hear all the time. People mm-hmm. call me up and say, Doris, I need to do some planning so the nursing home will not take my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, it, frankly, I hear that a lot. Me and I too. think it's because it's a scare tactic that's been used to to sort of convince people that they do need to do something about that. And one of the things that I suggest to people, I don't suggest, I tell them pretty plainly, is that the nursing home generally, generally, is not going to take your home. Mm-hmm. When when someone goes into a nursing home, you you go through this admission process, much like you do at the hospital, and there's a contract that you sign. And the contract says, you, nursing home, are going to take care of this elderly person and provide XYZ services, and I, in return, am going to pay you $7,000 a month or something along those lines. So that's a contract, just like... Uh, a credit card contract. When you you know sign up for a credit card, you sign a contract that says I'm going to use this card to purchase stuff, and the bank's going to pay for it, and I'm going to repay the bank uh, on these terms. This must interest blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's called an unsecured debt. 
So if you don't pay the bank card, the people that give you the credit card, if you don't pay your bill, Mm -hmm. they can't repossess the furniture that you bought with it or the Amazon stuff that you charge to that credit card. Mm -hmm. They sue you uh, and get what's called a judgment so that they can collect the money that you owe them. It's different from a house. When you're talking about a house, you borrow money to buy a house, you sign a note, and you execute a mortgage. And the mortgage and the note together allow the lender to take your house if you don't pay the mortgage. Mm. So that's a little bit different than a contract you would have with a nursing home. You generally have not in your contract said, you can take my house if I don't pay my bill. Mm Mm-hmm. So the real question is, how am I going to pay $7,000 a month? Yes. Right? Not how do I save my home, how am I going to pay for my care? Mm-hmm. Which is a very different question than how do I save my house? They're, they're connected. I'm not going to suggest that there is not a connection between those concerns. Mm-hmm. But the nursing home itself is not empowered to simply take your house from you. Now, having said that, if you do not pay your nursing home bill the nursing home is entitled to collect the money that you owe them. So they will sue you for the money you haven't paid them if you neglect to pay your bill. And they'll go to court and they'll stand in front of a judge and they'll say, judge, they promised to pay us this amount of money. They haven't paid it. And the judge will look at you and say, is that true? And you'll say yes. And they will get a judgment that allows them to collect against you. That is a whole further legal process that's called executing on a judgment mm. where they go back and then try to get access to the funds that relate to your house. And typically they would get a lien on your home. So when the house is sold, their debt is paid from the proceeds of your house. But no one's going to come in and jack up your house and haul it down the road and take it away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does uh, further emphasize the public in general. Are we preparing for paying for long-term care and for so many elderly people. I mean, they're, they're growing. We, we are not. Mm-hmm. We, we have a crisis that, as far as I'm concerned, is already upon us. Uh, a lot of people talk about the looming crisis uh, of, of the, the gray tsunami or the silver tsunami, as people talk about it. And that that is not true. It is already broken upon us. Yes. If you go to, to any... Uh, if you talk to any social worker in the hospitals, the discharge planners, the people that work in the nursing homes, they know very well that this is already a crisis. The shortage of beds and the shortage of the ability to pay for them is already very problematic. And we see it immediately when people reach this point where they are in care and they run out of money. So whatever other planning they've done, when that when their resources run out, then they have to turn to Medicaid. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road, mm. uh, is whether Medicaid is going to be able to sustain, A, paying for all of these people that need care who are now out of funds. Uh, and are there enough Medicaid certified beds available? And, and that also is a big problem. There are not. Mm. Yes. So, Wow. How do we start understanding that seniors are living longer? 
and um, and not necessarily uh, physically uh, challenged or mentally challenged, but they are living longer. And whatever the circumstance, they need the protection of laws, uh, but they also need medical. Uh, well, they need people to recognize them that they're see, see, still people. Is there a question in there for you, Doris? Help me out. Um, well, I'll, I'll take the first part of what you said first, and then see, see where we go with that. I think that uh, sometimes statistics, as, as difficult as it can be to really uh, read statistics and make them useful, uh, a good friend of mine and a colleague uh, who runs a business that also caters to the elderly um, shared some interesting statistics with me, but... Um, she, and more importantly, she she built some stories around that, some narrative around it that I think is useful. And if you, uh, the, the way she explained it to to a large number of people was, if you look at the way people lived and died in the turn of the last century, mm-hmm. so 1900 to say 1920, um, first of all, they lived at home. They weren't in nursing homes. They were in their homes, and you might have had several generations there and available to help care for them. But what happened was we did not die uh, over long periods of time. We would contract some kind of infection, uh, pneumonia, influenza, something of that nature, Mm -hmm. when we were in our late 40s, early 50s. And we would be sick for four or five days, and then we would die. Mm. Uh, And there were people in the home that took care of us during that, that period. It was much more rare to have someone that died of Alzheimer's that takes 10 years mm. or so to kill you, or a, uh, a cancer of some sort that today can be treated for quite a long time, uh, many years, and many of us are essentially cured of various cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, are all very treatable, mm-hmm. um, and people live a long time with those things. They don't kill us like they would have done back at the turn of the century, or even into the middle part of the last century. Mm-hmm. So people talk about this all the time, the technology of medicine and the treatments from the medical field have improved so dramatically that we live longer, and the question really becomes the quality of our life. So you can, in, in many respects, you can keep someone alive on life support almost indefinitely. You mm-hmm. can breathe for them, you can keep their blood circulating, all of those things, you can treat them with antibiotics. So, so we do live a long time, but you probably can't do that in your home, mm-hmm. right? And when you have practical issues, and, and you've had a lot of experience with this, with somebody with Alzheimer's, it's not always possible to care for them in your home because you may not be able to lift them in and out of the tub. Yes. They may have behaviors that make it very difficult to manage them in the home without some assistance. Uh, they may require special diets, uh, all, all kinds of things that would prevent you, or you may be working, right? It, as, as you are, you, you work. Uh, so for a mother who is both taking care of her children and taking care of a parent who has dementia of some sort and has to work, that is not a sustainable plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you do have to look at institutionalization as a possible alternative, or at least paid caregivers of some kind. Yes. Um, either coming into your home or, or some other alternative. 
I certainly support your approach that there needs to be a plan. We all need to be planning because we haven't been. And I didn't. I didn't plan for my parents to have Alzheimer's. I came back from New York thinking, you know, I'll fix this, no problem. But there it was. And we've got to plan. We've got to think about it. They have... Whether we had, we ultimately had 24 7 uh, caregivers. We had uh, hospice people coming in and bathing twice a week, and nurses coming in once a week. And, you know, um, and my parents had great in- insurance. I mean, all of that was terrific. But you still have to know what's coming. And I was lucky to be able to get to an attorney when they had a good day, mom and dad, that mm-hmm. is, uh, a mentally clarity. Because dad could be, you mentioned uh, behavior, dad could be extremely difficult to handle. Um, and, you know, I, ma- I did adjustments to the house itself so, so they could physically get around better, but they always had to be assisted. Anyway, I just want to, uh, we're going to go to a break, but I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your coming on the show from your legal POV. And speaking of legality, we're going to talk uh, in the next segment about crimes against senior citizens, uh, the elderly. Uh, So stay with us. We'll be right back with our Reasonable Voice guest today, attorney Doris Gilman. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Taking care of an Alzheimer's patient is a pretty much a full-time job. 50% of caregivers die uh, while they are caring for awareness about Alzheimer's and research. Just because someone's mind is being diminished does not mean that uh, the ordinary physical things don't happen. They can uh, have a sore throat and not be able to tell you. They can have something in their eye and not be able to explain it. So you have to be aware that in every respect, life is still going on for them physically, even though you are focused on the uh, the mental dementia, the, the person is still living a life physically and emotionally. For all those who see this video, I hope you will learn more than I ever did before you ever have to know it. That's my message. Support, please, the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you. Please call 800-272-3900. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio program. My guest today, the reasonable voice of attorney Doris Gelman. Her practice focuses entirely on elder law. When I got involved in taking care of my parents, a neighbor came to me at one point and said, well, some guy, she said, came along and evidently convinced my dad that he needed to cut down the trees, and he did, and I'm sure paid them who knows how much. So that was when it became apparent that I needed to have uh, legal control. But you also bring up other examples of how uh, the elderly, senior citizens, who are living longer, growing older, are being taken advantage of, perhaps even by family. Tell us about that. I mean, is, is, this, a, is this a growing problem? Is this something, is law enforcement addressing it? What, what's going on? Um, yes to both of those uh, questions, and, and I would go even further to say not only is it a growing problem, it's an exploding problem, and part of the reason for that is the demographic of older people is so large now and growing 
that the pool of potential victims of this kind of nonsense is much larger. So the problem is larger because the victim pool is much bigger. Um, and, and I, without beating my own drum too much, I spotted this trend actually several years ago, right after I opened my practice. Um, I, I came across a gentleman who had been scammed by his own cousin mm. to the tune of $50,000. And, wow. and this man did not have a lot of money. He had good credit. Um, and uh, it, it was a very devastating situation for him because not only did he not have money, he was going to lose his house because his cousin had convinced him to pledge his house on a mortgage uh, mm. without really understanding what he was doing. Um, uh, so it was... It, and there was some credit card fraud involved and a number of other things. And the reason I tell that part of the story, and I obviously don't want to disclose his, his situation sure. then or now, but uh, part of the problem that I had at the time was that I could not get anybody interested in investigating this as a crime. And there were most certainly criminal elements involved in this. Mm. Um, and they, you know, I can't, go back and say shoulda, woulda, coulda, but there was no question in this in my mind that this man had been a victim in several ways of fraud and embezzlement and any number of other things that could have been prosecuted as crimes. Uh, and I, at various times, I spoke to the Commonwealth's attorneys, I spoke to the police departments, there was a vehicle involved, so I spoke to the Department of Motor Vehicles, who has its own investigative arm. Mm-hmm. None of them would investigate this as a crime. And I kind of went on a mission from God to figure out how we were going to change that. Because what happens is when a victim of these sort of circumstances does go to, or I should say in past tense, did go to law enforcement, they were told, well, you gave them a power of attorney or you consented for them in your case to cut the trees so mm. there's no crime. Uh, and and that is not quite right. It is a crime because if you give someone a power of attorney, their job as your agent under power of attorney is to do things in your best interest, yes. not in theirs. Yeah. So w w what that is, that's called embezzlement. So when someone takes your power of attorney, uses your bank account to buy themselves a new car, we call that embezzlement. Yes. Uh, so... But it, it took some time to convince the various parties uh, involved in investigating crimes that it is not only a civil matter, it is a civil matter. You can sue someone for those sorts of things. Uh, but usually there's no money left to do that. Mm. But it is also a crime and should be investigated as a crime uh, because there is no other way to make sure uh, that that individual who committed the crime is not going to do it again it also sends a message to the community that this is a community that doesn't tolerate that sort of thing. Yes. How do you prevent that? I mean, as you say, I had power of attorney over my parents, both medically and financially. And I remember the attorney telling me when, when we finished signing the papers and whatever, I said, okay, what, what do you think is the first thing I need to do? Well, she was thinking I was going to put them in a facility, so she said, well, you can sell their home. It's yours now. And I remember, I went, what? Because 
I didn't yeah, think of it as... Yeah, that's not exactly accurate. Okay. It's still theirs, right? <laughs> yes. I, so I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how to res- respond to that, but in my opinion, it wasn't my home. And they, and in, and also in their doctors, in my opinion, they had to stay in it because that helped them mentally remain aware. But how does one prevent, or for that matter, prosecute this, the kinds of scams that uh, you've been talking about, which seem far worse than what I experienced with uh, what the neighbor told me about my dad? Yeah, so first of all, let's distinguish between a scam, or at least I, I distinguish, and some of the law enforcement folks have, have agreed with me, scams which of which there are legion out there, most of them coming in over the phone and over the Internet, which are difficult to investigate and prosecute. Things like the, what they call the granddad scam, where somebody calls up and says, oh, hey, granddad, it's your favorite grandson, and who wouldn't answer by saying, oh, Michael? And uh-huh. so now the scammer has your name yes. of your grandson and says, yeah, it's Michael, I'm in jail in Canada, and I need some money, and I need you to wire you know, $5,000 by Western Union to XYZ. Mm-hmm. That's the grandfather scam. And to, to prosecute and investigate those kinds of things are very, very difficult. Um, it's possible, but it's much more difficult. Because On the other hand, when you have an individual, as in the case that I described for you, the cousin of this man who is my client, that is a local person committing a crime. That's not really a scam. He's, he's doing something different. Um, and it is prosecutable. It is something you can investigate. You have information and evidence both from the victim and from the bank and from the documents. So those that, that's a lot different than what I think of as a scam. So to answer your question, preventing scams usually is more about education in advance so that the public knows that these are the types of things that can happen and that uh, the best thing for you to do is to ask lots of questions or get recommendations, get a copy of their license in the case of these people who are cutting down trees and building fences. And there's a famous one around this area about a guy selling meat out of the back of a truck. Those fall into the category more of scams than of actual intentional criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but these uh, people who are embezzling money or stealing money from from elderly people nine times out of ten are family members. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what the statistics at the Department of Social Services show us. It is a very high proportion of people are family members, and the next biggest category is a trusted caregiver, uh, possibly someone you pay, possibly just, you know, someone, a neighbor, a church member, someone, you know, that you've trusted to take care of you is now using your credit card without your permission or something of that nature. Wow. Well, I never, I never turned over my credit cards to any of the caregivers, but we did. We were fortunate. We had good people. However, I'll say this just because it's true and it does uh, support what you're saying. My mother's got so thin at one point that her wedding rings uh, would not stay on her finger. And I, instead of taking them with me, I put them in a uh, in a piece of furniture that was hers, and you know where I'd put other things. I mean, not that they had great value necessarily, except sentimental for me. But um, they disappeared, so I guess we have to be 
diligent all around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Tell tell me more about uh, what's happening. I know you're you you are in Virginia now, and so when you say locally, I presume you mean you mean the Commonwealth of Virginia, or is it just Charlottesville and counties? Uh, no, I actually uh, have a have a very specific concept of local. Okay. Um, after after I had this experience with this gentleman, I I as I said, kind of went on a bit of uh, a, a mission to Good. do something about this. Uh, and it turned out that over in Augusta County, they had formed a group of people, social workers from DSS, the sheriff's department, the prosecutor over there, had gotten together and created something called the Greater Augusta County Coalition to End Elder Abuse, or some wow. weird acronym like that. Mm-hmm. And and their their thing was, look, we know these things are happening, but these agencies are not talking to each other. We are not exchanging information and evidence that allows us to put an end to this stuff. So they began to do that. They began to meet on a regular basis. They did a lot of training around prevention and evidence collection and criminal prosecution. And I began to attend their meetings, even though it was kind of out of my bailiwick. Mm -hmm. But I took their model and brought it back over here, uh, over the mountain, as they say, Mm -hmm. and um, began to try to get the local authorities, uh, the Commonwealth's attorneys, so the city and the county, the sheriff's department, the police departments, the ombudsman, as we talked about uh, earlier, um, all of the people who are working with senior citizens to look at this from a criminal perspective. And I had very little success for for a long time, for years. Hmm. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Joe Platania, who is now, was at that time, was an assistant Commonwealth's attorney in the city, he and I were having coffee unrelated to any of this, and he was telling me the story about a case that he had prosecuted and succeeded in in, um, in convicting the person who had taken advantage of an elderly woman. And as he was telling me the story, uh, it became clear that it was someone that I had dealt with as a civil attorney at one point, and I knew the story and had not been able to get anybody to, to look at it at the time. Wow. So he now was sold on the need for doing this, and he was very instrumental uh, in what came next. Uh, and then uh, Robert Tracy, who's the current county commonwealth attorney, when he was running for that office, told me that if I would um, assist him in getting elected, he would help me get this elder crime task force mm. up and running. And he was as good as his promise. Um, within three months of, of gaining that office, he and Joe, uh, myself, and a number of other people sat around the table and said, what are we going to do about this? Um, and we uh, ended up creating something that has another weird acronym. It's the Jefferson Area Coalition to End Elder Abuse. Um, it includes not only the county and the city, um, various agencies uh, on aging the law enforcement agencies, the sheriff's department. There are two dedicated detectives from the county who investigate these cases. Excellent. Um, And uh, also the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Virginia State Police, the Attorney General, the State Attorney General's Office, particularly the Medicaid Fraud Unit. All of these people meet on a regular basis to talk about um, this type of crime. Sometimes it's specific. We do not exchange names. We, you know, we obviously have to be conscientious about people's 
privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but when someone has a case that's very difficult and they're having trouble figuring out how to investigate further or need more evidence and they're at a, they've hit a wall, they bring it to the table and say, what do I do about this? Mm. And from our various points of view, we can offer suggestions. And to that end, we decided to include a couple of the banks who has different resources and different needs and could provide different insights into what often starts at the bank. Yes. Um, and, And the tellers know. Right. They know their customers. They've come yes. in for years uh, and then all of a sudden there's a caregiver coming in with poor little little old Mrs. Jones and saying, you know, cash this check for $5,000 and the caregiver is standing right over her directing things. They know something's wrong. Yes. I hate to keep jumping in with my personal stories, but I think they do support exactly what you're saying. First time once I became the primary caregiver that I took my uh, father or maybe I saw the checkbook, and I don't know what it was, but I took him to the bank, and the the president of the bank or the manager was so happy to see me uh, because then she told me the story. Dad was coming in once a, a, a week, uh, cashing $1,000 checks, and she knew something was wrong, but she, she didn't know how to get a hold of me. I was in New York, etc., but she had seen me on occasion in the past, so she knew, and that we all sat down, and or he and I, and she, and uh, and she asked first of all, "Is this your son?" Yes, he said, and and then she told me what I just said. So it's going on; it's out there. I I know it, and I'm glad to have you on and telling people so they will know it as well. We need to do better. This I know we've talked about um, this crime wave, and from a standpoint of the financial exploitation. Uh, and abuse, physical abuse, of course, but what what kind of neglect? Uh, we, we haven't quite touched on that. There is that as well, yes? Yeah, and, and before I go any farther, before I forget, because I will, um, I should say that anybody that out there that thinks they might know of a situation where any of these things are going on, whether it's financial exploitation, abuse, or neglect, the portal, if you will, to the Jefferson Area Coalition to End Elder Abuse is through Department of Social Services, APS, which stands for Adult Protective Services. There's one in every county and every municipality. There's an 800 number. You can Google Virginia APS and you'll, you'll get it. I don't remember it off the top of my head. And that will get you to a, an intake worker. And if there's a crime going on, they will escalate it to the police department. You'll have to make five phone calls. Just call APS. Uh, so going back to your question about neglect, uh, and, and I should say neglect and abuse, mm-hmm. um, ne- neglect is, most people think of this as one person neglecting another. So you can, you can have, you know, a daughter who has said, oh, I'm going to take care of mother or a caregiver that's hired from an agency that's supposed to be caring for someone. And in fact, they're not, they're, they're neglecting them. They're not changing bandages. They're not supplying uh, medication, they're leaving them to lie in soiled clothes or or linens or or any of those things. It doesn't always rise to that level, but sometimes we do see cases where someone has developed bed sores so bad that they need to be hospitalized because Mm. of that kind of neglect. That's neglect by a caregiver, by another. There is such a thing as self-neglect, where a person doesn't have someone to care for them or refuses 
the care of another person. Mm. And social services runs into this all the time where an elderly person either is not able or is unwilling to have someone assist in their care, and that's called self-neglect. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's really extraordinarily sad when we see these things happen. Sometimes it's impossible to do anything to help someone who does not want help. If they refuse services, Mm. unless you have them deemed incapacitated, you really can't force services upon them. And uh, that, that is painful to watch. Yes. Well, we have been learning from uh, Doris W. Gelman, uh, elder attorney, and um, all, all the things that she has told us today, I, I can just tell you, I didn't know them going into caring for my parents, and you need to know them. You need to uh, be in touch with uh, social services, and I'll let you give that information again as well as her website. But, uh, you know, the medical issues, financial issues, mental I mean, it's just... We need to prepare, and the problem is growing because the elderly are increasing, and you know that's that's just a reality we need to face. So, uh, Doris, thank you for being on the show. But before we go, why don't could you give that the information on uh, on the uh, social services again, and and your website as well, please? Yeah, I, I wish I did have their phone number right in front of me, but if you Google Virginia Department of Social Services. Adult Protective Services, you will come up with an 800 number that will get you in touch with them immediately, 24 hours a day. You can, by the way, report anonymously. You do not have to identify yourself when you call them. Um, My uh, number is 434-906-7022. And if if you're unable to find APS, you can call me and I will find them for you or get you the number. My website is www gelbmanlaw.com I'll spell the last name it's G-E-L B like boy M-A-N law all one word lowercase www.gelbmanlaw.com Thank you so much Doris Gelbman elder attorney clearly knowledgeable on the on a far range of uh, of issues that uh, are upon us as she says as are upon us right now in how we deal with the parents and grandparents and the elderly in general. We need to expose the crime, prosecute the crime, and not abuse or neglect uh, those who need our care. I don't know how to thank you. Uh, Obviously, it's been a somewhat emotional um, uh, show for me, but I'm so glad you came on today, Doris Gelman, attorney at law. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Bye now. Taking care of an Alzheimer's patient is a pretty much a full-time job. 50% of caregivers die uh, while they are caring for awareness someone. about Alzheimer's and research. Just because someone's mind is being diminished does not mean that uh, the ordinary physical things don't happen. They can uh, have a sore throat and not be able to tell you. And they can have something in their eye and not be able to explain it. So you have to be aware that in every respect, life is still going on for them physically, even though you are focused on the the mental dementia, the, the person is still living a life physically and emotionally. For all those who see this video, I hope you will learn more than I ever did 
before you ever have to know it. That's my message. Support, please, the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you. Please call 800-272-3900. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Are we the people ready for post-Trump-Pence America? Are we ready to admit this truth? Most accidents, vehicle, rail, traffic, swimming pool, kitchen, cooking, window washing, weight disorders, falling cranes, hospital, senior facilities, opiate overdoses, house fires, and being left in overheated cars resulting in serious injury or death are due to human error. Like rushing too fast to get it right the first time or preoccupation with personal problems diminishing common good focus, or cutting corners, whether corporate-ordered or individual work ethic, or texting, cell phoning, iPod, radio distractions. Are we not yet ready to unchain ourselves from things, places, people, elections, and corporations inciting an abundance of digital mob mindset being herded beyond groupspeak into gratuitous global screen fixation? Think about it. Can our exceptionalism survive voters without civics education for election participation? Voters more consumed by student debt than big picture? Voters defending not voting or voting for the greater of two evils? Voters proving the fallacy that perfection can be achieved without first doing the best we can to do better? Aren't memory lapses of historical lessons flashing red warnings to get ready? Or does self-absorbed overconsumerism dim our ability to deny perfect the freedom to handicap better? Are we less ready than Robert Todd Lincoln or any American for President William McKinley's September 14, 1901 death by bullet infection after the lesson of President James Garfield's September 19, 1881's death by medical arrogance? Was America's military and civilian oversight ready for 1963 Dallas after Good Friday, 1865 Lincoln assassination? Perhaps then America's not being ready for World War II 24 years after World War I's mustard gas ending is not surprising. Is being blindsided by an administration determined to destroy our environment for profit, prioritizing internment camps over post-hurricane rescue, a joint venture in my bad, is continually shifting from headlines de jour, defense for our forgetting lead-poisoned children in 2014 Flint, Michigan? According to a new report by the World Health Organization and UNICEF, some three in ten people worldwide, or 2.1 billion with a B, lack access to safe, readily available water at home, and six in ten, or 4.5 billion with a B, lack safety-managed sanitation. Whether self-preservation or our brother's keeper, are we ready? If not my problem, love it or leave it, anti-immigrant conservatives, are we fact-check ready? Try this. Of the 327.16 million Americans, 
63 million are exposed to unsafe drinking water in 2018. Is being ready insisting our oceans are our protection? Insisting more guns equals safer schools? Insisting not even God can sink our stock market and 401ks? Insisting our nuclear facilities, our fracking, our grid, and our utility companies keep America safe? Insisting Texas is better without Helen Keller and Hillary Clinton in history books? Is repeating thoughts and prayers for September 11, 2001, Sandy Hook, December 14, 2012, and Parkland's 2018 Valentine's Day being ready? Electing trickle-down economics empowered an anti-checks-and-balances Dick Cheney power grab for presidential superiority. So, are we ready to stop believing the lies we tell ourselves about perpetual war, Alzheimer's, the gutting of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, FEMA, and Republican senators willing to install a second alleged sexual abuser to our Supreme Court were Americans in Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover, Massachusetts, made ready for late-night gas explosions, house fires, and, after the fact, mandatory run-for-your-lives evacuations caused by years of neglecting leaky old gas pipes? While no generation is responsible for the world it inherits, each successive generation is America's best hope for the reconstruction of truth. For instance, too big to jail bankers, Great Recession, dehydrating Americans with Detroit emergency manager Kevin Orr and his Detroit Water and Sewage Department's 2013 water shutoffs, and intentional coal ash 2014 North Carolina water contamination diminished American readiness. It is ludicrous to expect perfect candidates. Tolerate, huh? response to voting, or permit elected officials to renege on our supremely chiseled promise, equal justice under law. As a people, we've readily accepted the superficial over in-depth investigation, mesmerized by the dramatic effect of stand-ups in hurricane winds and floods over advocating for our interior, insisting on FEMA, environmental, and climate reality checks. Are we ready to let go of denial and stop accepting government propaganda as patriotism, religious bias as family values, and corporate marketing as truth? Are we ready to proclaim to the world and to ourselves, there is more patriotism, hope, and heroic honesty and definition of America in athletes and first responders taking a knee than there ever will be in trumpeting we're ready, willing, and able without each other. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. 
we hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard around the world.